You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. I'll also flip over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. You can hold your place there in Luke's Gospel. We're going to start in Matthew, chapter 20. Vision is a powerful word, isn't it? Uh, Just less than 60 years ago, there were 22,000 acres just southwest of Orlando, Florida, that was a wasteland where alligators outnumbered people. Uh, It was described as porous limestone underlying a vegetal muck. (laughs) It was land that no one wanted until November the 22nd, 1963, when a chartered plane flew over that huge expanse of muck and mire, and a guy named Walt Disney pointed to it and said, that's it. That's it. And now that region has been transformed into what the entire planet knows as Disney World. In this New Year's series, Revision, we are unpacking the biblical basis for our mission, our vision as a church, our core values. And we are envisioning a church that is laser-focused on leading people on a life-transforming journey to become fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. Last week, we focused on what we know as the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. And today, we're going to look at the great commitment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love and serve others. Now, by way of review, last week, uh, we saw Jesus answer a question posed by a lawyer, a Pharisee. And he asked this question. He said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I think part of the reason he wanted to know the answer to that question is because that question would then answer, which is the greatest sin that a person could commit? If I can know which is the greatest law, then I can know that a violation of that law would be the greatest sin. And the Pharisees were masterful at pointing out people's sin, right? That's what they wanted to do. They were the rule keepers. Jesus' answer was really a a recap of what Moses had said and written almost 1,500 years before. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Jesus went a step further and said, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this supreme love for God will impact the way that you love your fellow man. It'll impact the way that you love your coworkers and your fellow church members and your family members and your neighbors. If you went to Wall Street and you asked the question, what is the secret of greatness? Wall Street would very likely say money and lots of it. If you were to go to Washington and ask that same question, what is the secret of greatness? They would likely say, well, it's political power, it's, it's clout. If you were to go to Hollywood and ask, what is the secret of greatness? Hollywood would likely say it's fame and notoriety. But the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, had a very different answer. He said here in Matthew chapter 20, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
That's why I've asked you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, this morning. And I want us to look at verses 20 through 28. Uh, If you're familiar with this section of Scripture, Jesus uh, is again talking about his uh, impending death, why he has come. He's come to lay down his life. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And so it's in that context. Think about his disciples. They've basically left everything they have. They left jobs and all those sorts of things to follow after Jesus, to attach themselves to to this one, to apprentice themselves. That's literally what discipleship is. It's apprenticing yourself to the master. And so they've done that, and now he's talking about dying and leaving them. So you can imagine all that they're struggling with, all that they're wrestling with in this. And so they're naturally thinking about what comes next. And so it's kind of in that context that we find this mother's request. If you're a baseball person, then this is like her coming and saying, I'm pretty sure my son should play shortstop on your team. My two boys should probably make up your middle infield because they're pretty amazing, right? It's, it's kind of a weird request, but we pick it up in verse number 20. It says, The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. They thought, what what an ask. I mean, what what is this? I mean, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, he's talking about himself now, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what we see here is that success and greatness in the kingdom of God are far different than what it is on planet Earth. In the kingdom of God, there is no easy elevator to the top. There's no fast track to the top. To get to the top, in God's eyes, you've got to take the stairs of service. Jesus said again, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others. Here's the big truth that I want you to understand today from that particular text. The secret to greatness in the kingdom of God is not how many servants you have, but what kind of servant you are. Some of us are more naturally inclined toward this. Uh, We we, we find it a little easier to look out for the needs of others than we do for ourselves. But let's face it, I I don't know of a parent in this world who said, you know what? I had to sit my kids down one day and I had to teach them how to be selfish. You, You don't have to. It's part of our natural sinful bent, isn't it? And so some of us really struggle with this. We do really well at looking out for number one. 
And so Jesus is saying here, he's saying, hey, the most important thing is not how many servants you have, but what kind of servant you are. The statement that Jesus made is one of the most incredible statements of his entire ministry. The one called by his own disciples, Lord and Master, the one person who should serve no one and be served by everyone, says that his attitude is not to see how he can be served necessarily, but to serve others. He came in service to others. Think about his earthly ministry. I mean, as you study the Gospels, you see Jesus over and over again taking the time uh, to minister to the vulnerable, to the least What was he criticized for? Eating with messy people, right? Sinners and stuff like that. That's why he was criticized. Uh, What what an amazing thing that we see here. What a heart, what an attitude, what a spirit. And that, that really lays the foundation for looking at today the great commitment to love and serve our neighbors. If you've ever watched a presidential State of the Union address, in recent years anyway, you know that at some point in the speech, the president will likely point to the balcony and will introduce an ordinary citizen as a person of significance, a real hero in this country. Uh, This custom began uh, when President Ronald Reagan introduced a man named Lenny Skutnik. Prior to the State of the Union, to this day, reporters will often ask presidential speechwriters and presidential aides the question, who are the Skutniks this year? In other words, who are the ordinary people, who's the ordinary people that the president's going to point to as heroic? Lenny Skutnik was a federal worker walking down the street minding his own business until the day that Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River. The flight had just taken off from Washington, bound for Florida. It had developed ice on its wings, and it brought the plane down as it tried to clear Washington's 14th Street Bridge. Some of you might remember that event. In the next few fateful moments, several passengers were thrown into the icy river uh, very quickly. Rescue crews came to their aid. A rescue helicopter came, but it could only uh, pull from the water one or two people at a time. And there was one lady in the water who was struggling to grab the ladder. She couldn't lift her arms out of the water, and it looked like she was going to drown. Everyone else on the bridge was shouting encouragement to her, as you can imagine. But Lenny Skutnik did something different. He pushed through a police barricade, jumped into the river, risking his own life, and pulled that lady to safety. The president of the United States called him a hero. You know what the Lord Jesus would have called him? A good neighbor. I think he would see him as a hero, for sure, especially by human standards, but a good neighbor. So now I want us to turn our attention to Luke's gospel, chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, you find uh, what many would describe as a familiar story. Uh, We call this the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus tells this story here, and it's related to really the Lenny Skutniks of the world. Once again, the story begins with a lawyer asking a good question, but with a bad motive. And I want you to notice that Jesus does what he often does. He doesn't directly answer his question. Instead, he answers his question with a question of his own. So let's pick it up in verse number 25 of Luke chapter 10. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And he answered, this should sound familiar to you, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So they're, they're bouncing these questions kind of back and forth here. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with this parable. And here it comes. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Now, that doesn't grab your attention this morning. It doesn't grab my attention in quite the same way that it would have grabbed the attention of these original listeners. A Samaritan. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So again, Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What is your reading of it? And the lawyer replied to Jesus' question with a perfect answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you got it. You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. And even though Jesus affirmed his answer, the lawyer follows up with another question. He says, and who is my neighbor? You see, what he was trying to do by asking that question, he was trying to separate people into two categories, neighbors and non-neighbors. Neighbors and non-neighbors. And he gave Jesus a golden opportunity to tell one of his greatest stories, to, to give us this parable, to teach one of the greatest lessons, and really, in many respects, to shock the world at the same time. Now, I understand the significance of what Jesus was saying in this simple story, this parable. According to verse number 30, this particular man is he's walking down what's known as the Jericho Road. The Jericho Road is a 17-mile, very narrow, dangerous, winding road that is bordered by steep cliffs on one side, barren hills on the other side. Even to this day, if there's too much rain, the road is impassable. As a matter of fact, the road was so dangerous in those days that it was often known as the way of blood. The way of blood. It was dangerous for a lot of reasons. Bible scholars estimate that there were thousands of thieves that lived in that Judean wilderness surrounding Jerusalem. These thieves roamed the countryside like packs of wild dogs attacking innocent victims and beating them and robbing them. So here was a man who had been victimized by some thieves, by some robbers, and not only robbed but beaten and left for dead. And Jesus introduces in his story some characters. There are the thieves, there's a priest and a Levite, and the individual that we know as the good Samaritan. These people tell us what kind of neighbor we really are to other people. 
we see personified in these different characters in the parable of the Good Samaritan different attitudes that dictate how we see others and how we treat others. So I want you to notice, first of all, the thieves. The prevailing attitude would have been lust. Lust. Lust says, what is yours is mine, I will take it. What is yours is mine, I will take it. Now, there are far more thieves than you might realize. A lot of different ways to actually steal than you might be thinking. The robber who takes money, certainly, uh, that doesn't belong to him, that is certainly a thief. But understand this, the rapist who takes sexual pleasure from someone is a thief. The adulterer is a thief. Someone who steals a child's innocence is thief. Someone who mentally manipulates someone and steals their peace of mind and their, their, and their self-worth and all those things is in many respects a thief. Corporate executives and CEOs who bilk innocent stockholders of billions of dollars are thieves. But you can be a thief in more ways than one. You might be a thief here today and not even realize it. Let me give you a definition of a thief that you may have never heard before. God has given us both things and people. Things and people. He's given us things to use and people to love. But when we begin to love things and use people, we essentially become a thief in many ways. If your attitude is always, what's in it for me, then you, in some ways, are a thief. If your attitude is, I, I want my needs met, I don't care about others, you are, in some ways, a thief. If you say, I want it my way, and I don't care what happens to others, then in some ways, you are a thief. Your attitude is, just make sure I get mine, I don't care about anybody else. You see, there's an attitude that says, I do what I want, no matter how it affects other people. And they look at others and say, what is yours is mine. I will take it. They're controlled by lust. Now, if that doesn't hit home for you, maybe you're having a hard time identifying with that, and you're thinking to yourself, I would never, I would never take something that doesn't belong to me. That would never be my attitude. I hope that's true. But let's consider the second, and that's legalism. It says, what is mine is mine. Now, we often joke and say that the rule of the nursery, the church nursery, is what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine, right? <laughs> but but, but th th we see this in both the priest and the Levite. So what's mine is mine, I will keep it. I'll keep it. Th those who are legalists are, are super proud of their self-righteousness. They will give you a, a lengthy list. They will give you their spiritual resume, all of those sorts of things. And so Jesus moves on to the second major players in this act, and we find them in verses 31 and 32. If you're following the text there, it says, Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the two people that you would have thought would have stopped for sure to help this man would have been the priest and the Levite, right? Because they represent the religious people of the day, the religious crowd. As a matter of fact, since they were coming from Jerusalem, uh, some would suspect that they had just gotten out of church, basically. But their problem wasn't uh, it, what, what they did necessarily. Their problem was that they didn't want to get involved. Quite frankly, their attitude is not all that unusual. Jesus illustrates 
uh, by what they, what they did not do, that they were no better off than the thieves in many respects. You see, you can be a thief in one of two ways, really. A thief can take something that does not belong to him, while the selfish keep something that could be given to someone else. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. You see, this is the problem. They could have done something. They could have told the authorities there was a man that needed help. They could have gone and gotten a doctor. They could have, they could have done something, but they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. And you see, the problem with both the priest and the Levite is not what they did. They, they didn't beat the guy up. They didn't rob him. No, the problem was what they didn't do. I think one of the fastest ways for us to get off course as a church is to simply do nothing. To do nothing. And churches all over America particularly are guilty of this. We just turn inward. And we keep thinking about the needs of other people and those outside these walls. We just do nothing. And so when it's time to give, do nothing. When it's time to worship, do nothing. When, when the opportunity for ministry is available, do nothing. One of the greatest problems that we have in the church today is a, a lot of priests and Levites. Several years ago, a survey discovered that only 10% of American church members are active in any kind of personal ministry. 50% of all church members have no interest in serving in any kind of ministry. In other words, half of the church is saying rather loudly and pretty clearly, I just don't want to get involved. I just don't want to get involved. You say, well, why is that? Well, trust me, this is something that we pastors ask all the time. Why is that? How can we change that? Uh, over the, the course of my ministry, I've talked to a lot of pastors. I've talked to pastors regularly, church leaders regularly. I have still not met a church leader or a pastor who says, in our church, we just have way too many servants. We have way too many volunteers. It's not a problem. <laughs> why is that? I think sometimes loving and serving our neighbor is messy. You think it was messy for this guy in the story of the Good Samaritan? I mean, it tells us that he bound up his wounds. I would say it was a little messy. It's often inconvenient, and it often requires some sacrifice on our part. Sometimes it involves loving and serving someone, check this out, with whom you disagree on a variety of subjects. Could be awkward. It may involve someone who doesn't look like you or someone who doesn't share your values. Imagine that. And this is becoming more and more of an issue in our culture the more polarized we become. Because now the people who disagree with us, we, we can't just say, I disagree with them. Now they're our enemy. And let's face it, how many of us really want to stop and be a good neighbor to our enemy, right? I mean, they don't vote like me. They don't view vaccines the way I do. They don't view that. They don't view that. They're my enemy. So what do we do with that? There's a Hebrew word. It's mishpat. Mishpat is a word that it adds clarity, I think, to this whole idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's usually translated justice. And while the word justice, I realize, has become like a political lightning rod in our day, it is what God intends for us to move toward. It is what God intends for us to work toward in loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is restorative in nature. 
And so when we're talking about loving our neighbor as ourselves, we're not just talking about saying good morning to the next door neighbor when we roll our trash bin out to the curb. That's a great thing to do. We're not just talking about taking a plate of cookies to the people who just moved in up the street. That's a great thing to do, but it's much more than that. Okay, it's not just being neighborly in the way we think of being neighborly. And I think Jesus really makes it clear here that he's not just talking about neighbor in the sense of those who live in close proximity to you. That's kind of the point of the story here in many respects. Because if we were like this lawyer, we'd basically be going, I'd be like, well, so does this guy like live in Georgetown? Does he live on San Carlos? Because that's the street I live on. But if he lives on Newport, I'm out. Okay, that's kind of what this lawyer's trying to do. Like he's trying to separate neighbors from non-neighbors, right? Because if I can make up this list of non-neighbors over here, then I'm off the hook with those people. It's not about proximity. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Now I want us to see finally this morning the third attitude. And that's love. If the thieves represent those who would say, what's yours is mine, I will take it. If the priest and the Levi, the the legalists, would say, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. Then the good Samaritan represents the attitude of love. What is mine is yours, I will give it. I will give it. We know this guy is the hero, of course. Now, again, when Jesus brings the Samaritan into the story, you probably could have heard a collective gasp when they heard him say a certain Samaritan. You have to understand that today we talk about the good Samaritan. We don't have a problem with that. But 2,000 years ago, the Jew felt that the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan because they hated the Samaritans. There were several reasons. The Samaritans were Jews who, after Israel had been defeated by the Babylonians, they stayed behind. They intermarried with the Assyrians, who were an abomination in the sight of the Jews. They even built their own temple at Mount Gerizim and refused to worship in Jerusalem. If you really wanted to insult a person 2,000 years ago, all you had to do would be, all you had to do is call him a Samaritan. That's, that's why the Pharisees said to Jesus in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 48, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In that day, it would not have been uncommon to hear a Pharisee in the temple and out loud thank God that he had not been born a woman, a Gentile, or a Samaritan. Highly, highly offensive, right? And yet Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, the reason he does this is to teach a lesson that the crowd that day particularly, and maybe the crowd this day by application, never thought that Jesus would teach. I'm convinced that not everybody understands the real meaning of this story. It's kind of like the little boy who came home from Sunday school one day. His mother asked him what he had learned at Sunday school, and he said, well, it was about two preachers who saw a man in a ditch But they didn't stop because he had already been robbed. (laughs) I think sometimes we, we, we 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 don't get it. Actually, Jesus told this story to illustrate to the lawyer and to those who were listening that he'd been asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? Because he's going to see in a moment that you don't need to ask that question. The question is, am I a good neighbor? Am I the right kind of neighbor? I mean, you put yourself in this story and ask yourself this question and be completely honest. 
Who, who would you have been that day? One of the thieves? You'd say, oh, never, pastor, never. The priest and the Levite? Eh, let's be real honest now. When it's messy and it's inconvenient and it may require some sacrifice on our part, if we're completely honest, many times we're not the good Samaritan. We're more like the priest and the Levite. I don't want to get involved. I was talking to Michael Fellini the other day, a retired police officer. He said, it'll amaze you the number of times that they come up on the scene of a, of a crime or something, and you'll find that there have been people there, people in proximity, and you know what they've done? They pulled out their phones and videoed. Have they done anything to really help? We live in a weird time, y'all. It's not unusual to hear stories like that of people who've witnessed heinous crimes on public transportation in various places. And did they do anything? No, they don't want to get involved. It could be too messy. It could be weird. It could be awkward. And if we're completely honest, sometimes we're just like that. So we begin to understand then the meaning of the story. You see, everyone is your neighbor, not just the person next door, not just the person in your neighborhood. A neighbor is a person in need or in danger. A neighbor is a needer. A needer. And so every time you see a person in need, you immediately become a neighbor. You become a minister with a ministry. And I'm not suggesting that all of us can help everyone. Okay, we can't. I know for some of us, it, it seems overwhelming. I get that. But what do you do when God puts those opportunities before you? Walk by on the other side? Or do you stop and show compassion? Because the last three words of verse number 33 tells us what set the Samaritan apart. It says, he had compassion. He had compassion. So what made this Samaritan so special was not the color of his skin, but the compassion of his heart. No law could make the priest or the Levite stop, but love could make the Samaritan stop. And notice what the Samaritan did for this man. Look at verses 34 and 35 again. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He probably tore his own robe, his own clothing, to make the bandages. He took oil and wine from his own supplies to use his medicine. Then he took them to an inn and paid for his upkeep. Two denarii may not sound like a whole lot of money to you and me, but it was two days' wages back then and would pay for somewhere around 24 days of full room and board. A good neighbor is less concerned about cost and more concerned about compassion. And again, I, I recognize we don't, we, we don't all have unlimited means. Now, the crowd was already about to faint because of what Jesus had said. And then Jesus really drove the point home. He said, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? I'm sure the answer almost gagged the lawyer. In fact, you'll notice he doesn't even say the Samaritan. He said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now we see the difference in the attitude of people and what makes you a good neighbor. 
A good neighbor does not say, I do what I want to do, or even I do what I have to do, but I do what I ought to do. I do what I ought to do. So the question this morning is this, are you a good neighbor? And I'm not asking if if you mowed the side yard between your house and the neighbors. That's great. I'm talking about much more than that. Do you even have an awareness of some of the needs around you? There are a lot of hurting people right now. A lot of people who are just bone weary in their soul. They're searching and longing for something. But do we even have the time to stop and say, how can I help? Can I pray with you? People have deep wounds. Some of them not physical. You may say, well, I wouldn't know exactly what to do. I don't get the impression that the Samaritan was like a trained EMT or anything, right? Yeah, I think sometimes we can find every kind of excuse in the world. I'm not a licensed, trained professional counselor. So I can... You can pray with someone. What can you do? Are you a good neighbor? Do you see yourself as a minister with a ministry? And if you're part of the First Baptist Van Alstine family, do you have a ministry in this church? Do you have a ministry outside of this church? Do you have those around you that you can minister to? See, it's, it's much more than the slogan of an insurance company. Like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. And like a good neighbor, Jesus is there in you and me as we are his hands and feet. And we love and serve others like we love ourselves. And in the same way that we have been loved and served by our Heavenly Father. It's the great commitment. What some of us may have to do is we have to step out of our own little bubble, our own little world, where we're just so self-absorbed and all we can think about is ourselves and our, our, our issues and think about other people. What are their needs? How can I love and serve them like Jesus loves and serves? So if we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment this morning. is the time in our service that we often refer to as a time of decision. And while we don't do what many would refer to as a traditional altar call, there is always an invitation. There's always an invitation. For some of you, the invitation is this. You may be here today and you may be searching and seeking Longing for something spiritually, you're wandering aimlessly. You're even uncertain about your relationship with God or if there is a God. God's word makes it clear that the only way that we can be in a right relationship with God is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're walking a road of self-righteousness, hoping and praying and trying and striving to be good enough so that hopefully someday you will earn God's favor, that's ultimately a dead-end road. It just is. 
Because God's word tells us that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So it's only as you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ that you can be reconciled to holy God as a sinful human being, be in right relationship with him. If you're here today and your testimony is one of faith in Christ, you can truthfully say, I have, in fact, taken that step of faith, and I've turned from my sin to faith in Jesus Christ, then the question to you today is, what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor are you? Are you more concerned with who, who are the neighbors and the non-neighbors? Or are you most concerned with meeting the needs of those around you that God puts in your path, that God brings to your attention? Are you willing to say wherever he leads, I'll go? It may be across the street or next door. So our prayer today should be, God, give me an awareness of the needs around me. And God forbid... If I try to take something that's mine, or I try to walk by on the other side and do nothing when I can and should do something. Father, we thank you. We thank you for, for those of us who uh, are often slow to get it, but you make it incredibly simple. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the needs around us. To have a willingness to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To be the neighbor that you would have us be. Lord, even when it's messy, even when it's inconvenient, even when it requires some sacrifice, Help us, Lord, to understand that there are people who are vulnerable all around us. Lord, give us a willingness and a resolve to step in. God, we thank you. We thank you that on our behalf, you stepped in. You bound up our wounds. You gave us a future and a hope that apart from you, we would not have. And for that, we're grateful. We love you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.